So we have two readings today. First will be from the Heidelberg Catechism. We'll be looking at Lord's Day 5. And then also from there we'll move to Genesis 18. We'll read uh, verses 22 to 23, or 33. So Lord's Day 5. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, he claims the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Question 13. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Question 14. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. And lastly, question 15. What kind of mediator or deliverer should we look for then? One who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than any creatures, that is, one who is also true God. And then into Genesis chapter 18. and So just having read about intercession and the need for a complete Savior who is true and righteous God, but also true man. We'll read about inner Abraham's attempt at intercession. So Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous far as the wicked, fair as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 40 I will not do it. Then he said, O let let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak 
Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak with the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O let the Lord, not, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So far the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, if we investigate Genesis 18 with a director's eye, we see a wide lens opening shot. First, the Lord appears on the scene accompanied by two others. Abraham notices them and reverence and eagerness fill the scene. Sarah enters the frame and Abraham and Sarah frantically prepare a meal for their guests. Great news is received as the promise of a son will soon arrive and Sarah responds the same way that Abraham did in Genesis 17 with laughter. Verse 16 narrows the focus as Sarah exits the scene and the men set out towards Sodom. The Lord reveals his intentions and the lens focuses even further as the men who accompany the Lord turn towards Sodom. And now, it's just the Lord and Abraham. The spotlight shines on Abraham. He turns to the Lord and does what nobody in Scripture has done yet. Abraham initiates conversation with the Lord and asks the Lord a question. So our focus this evening as we explore Scripture is Abraham's attempt at intercession. And we'll unpack this in three points. We'll see point number one, the initial proposal. Point number two, the negotiations. And point number three, the settlement. So we pick up the scene as Abraham is given the spotlight. It is just Abraham and the Lord. Abraham draws near to the Lord, and with the Lord's attention, he does what nobody else in Scripture has. He initiates conversation and asks the Lord a question. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, what are we supposed to make of this? Does Abraham doubt the goodness and the righteousness of the Lord? Is this a backhanded compliment? Is Abraham being too bold? See, rather, it's more likely that Abraham is worried about his cousin Lot as well as the righteousness of the Lord. 
And it's not that God has blind spots, but we can think of Abraham maybe double-checking the math of the Lord to see if it still adds up to righteousness. The text has indicated to us already that, and as it will going forward as we continue to examine it, that Abraham had only reverence and adoration for the Lord. We see this in his excitement as he bowed himself to the earth to ask for favor in the Lord's eyes. So with reverence and adoration, Abraham asked the Lord a moral question. Should the actions of a few dictate the outcome of many? Or do you not have any regard for the righteous that they would be swept away with the wicked? And Abraham knows the answer to this question. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. And this is the case from Scripture. God extends mercy to the righteous and does not sweep them away with the unrighteous. Noah was spared from a wicked generation. Rahab did not come to the same fate as the people of Jericho. But the Lord's mercy does not depend upon the person. But it's on the Lord that He will show mercy to whom He will show mercy. And Abraham then asks another question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now Abraham confesses confesses confidence in the absolute fairness of the Lord, but there's also a challenge to the Lord to do what is right. See, laced within Abraham's question is a confession. He calls the Lord the judge of all the earth. This is not just an ad hoc statement by Abraham trying to tickle the ear of the Lord, trying to soften the Lord as Abraham has his repeated requests, hopefully that the Lord will listen to him. See, Abraham is declaring that the Lord is judge of all the earth. He is not only judge for Abraham, he is also the judge for the people of Sodom. It is his right and it is his duty to judge the nations. The Lord is not unjustly going outside tribal bounds. His judgments extend to the reaches of all the earth and all those who are a part of his creation. But who is this Lord? Who is this Lord that Abraham confesses as judge of all the earth? See, Abraham and his confession point to the identity of the second person of the Trinity. It's Jesus Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. As we've learned from the Belgic study this week, it was a Christophany is how we categorize this pre-incarnate Christ. And we have the unique privilege and vantage point of a clear view of Scripture See, we can read in the New Testament where it teaches us in John, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. 
And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. But also in Acts, it says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that's Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And also by Paul in Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And you should share in Abraham's confidence that Jesus Christ is a righteous judge. His judicial proceedings extend throughout the whole earth. He is not only a judge of Christians, but for Muslims, for atheists, for Buddhists, North Americans, South Americans, Europeans and Russia, and the list goes on. There is nowhere outside his judicial reach. There is no refuge in extradition laws of another country or of another religion. Christ is judge over all the earth. All unrighteousness will be judged, each according to their works. He will separate the sheep from the goats, the former to inherit everlasting life, and the latter to receive the full weight of judgment and the fury of His wrath. So how does the Lord, this righteous judge of all the earth, respond to Abraham? He agrees not to destroy the wicked for the sake of 50 righteous that might be found there. The Lord shows that He's also merciful. See, in Abraham's initial proposal, he really is only grasping at the only bargaining chip that he has, and that's the mercy of God. Everything Abraham has, he has received from the Lord. There is nothing that Abraham is able to trade. All he would be doing is returning the things that the Lord has given to him. Abraham's only hope is the mercy of the Lord. And Abraham's initial proposal acknowledged his incomplete knowledge of the Lord, tipping his hand too early that he was unprepared for the negotiations. And now we can turn our attention to the second point, the negotiations. Now commentators will quibble about the dialogue between Abraham and the Lord. Some want to describe the discussion as bargaining or bartering or even haggling. One commentator states that haggling is usually perceived as a practice that is socially negative, true for customers and for traders. And for this reason, the practice usually requires a degree of social distance. This type of negotiation was received negatively. But if we look at verses 27 through 31, there's only one party really partaking in the negotiations. The Lord never responds with a counteroffer to Abraham, only acceptance of the offer that Abraham presented. So it is hardly negotiations when only one party is interacting. 
but also the reverence for the Lord shows that these are not typical negotiations. See, it should be noted that in these negotiations that Abraham and the Lord are in agreement. See, Abraham never interceded for the wicked, but merely that the righteous would not be swept away with the wicked. His attention is on the righteous and not the wicked. See, not only does this one-way direction of these negotiations show that these are not your typical negotiations, but also Abraham's language. He's persistent and respectful. Verse 27, Abraham confesses a distinction between himself and his Lord. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am dust and ashes. Abraham shows humility, again, and a deeper respect to who he's talking to. He knows that he has no merit to ask, but does so with humility. He's not brash or abrasive, not assuming his covenantal relationship with the Lord, but with humility he presents his request before the Lord. The Lord agrees again to the request. The city will not be destroyed for the sake of 45. And Abraham asks again, well, what about 40? And the Lord agrees to 40. So how can you describe Abraham's negotiation through these three offerings. If we could describe it, Abraham's actions at best, he is fishing, he's kind of dipping his toe in the water. He's unsure of the mercy and the grace of the Lord. He does not want to ask for too much right away, so the conversation stalls and goes nowhere, ending the negotiations altogether. But as the negotiations continue, Abraham gets bolder. But he is still just as respectful as we see in verse 29. In Abraham's persistence, he does not want to invoke the anger of the Lord, especially as he ups the ante. Instead of increments of five, he boldly now asks in increments of ten. Suppose thirty are found there. And the, rep- and the Lord replies, as he has throughout the whole discussion with his simple, I will not do it. It says, if Abraham doesn't know what he's asking for, he's still fishing, probing, trying to determine the depth of the mercy and the grace of the Lord. Again, he does not want to ask too little, but not too, and be not too persistent to invoke the anger of the Lord. Abraham asks again, respectfully, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. What about 20? And the Lord responds succinctly, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Thus far, Abraham has gotten everything he asked for with no counteroffer from the Lord. This interaction can, be hard, can hardly be called a negotiation. And mindful of the anger of the Lord, Abraham's persistence is limited to one last request. And as he has done so thus so far, he asks with reverence and adoration for the Lord, what about ten? 
And the Lord responds as to be expected at this point. For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. See, with barely any words spoken from the Lord, he reveals his character to those he covenants with. We see the patience of the Lord. He entertains six requests from Abraham. And though Abraham presumes it, the Lord does not show agitation or frustration for the consistent barrage of requests from Abraham. Abraham shows us that the Lord is the judge of all the earth, that there's no limit to his judicial reach. Not only is he a judge of all the earth, but he is a just judge. A judge who has the power to destroy cities, that his judicial reach is accompanied by the power to execute his justice. The Lord has the ability to follow through in his verdict. But also Abraham shows us how we can interact with the Lord. That we need to be persistent. And Abraham is persistent. He still shows reverence and adoration. Not relying again on his covenantal relationship with the Lord. Abraham knows his place. And he confesses that he's dust. But there's still an incomplete knowledge of God that Abraham has. And much like our own Abraham's knowledge of the Lord's mercy and grace is incomplete. So having walked through the negotiations and observed the reverence that Abraham has for the Lord and the patience of the Lord as he entertains the requests of Abraham, we'll look at our last point in the settlement. So Abraham negotiated from 50 all the way down to 10. On paper, that looks like a pretty good deal. An 80% discount. Now, who wouldn't take a deal like that? So it would be hard to argue that Abraham failed in his negotiations. With all the good work Abraham did, he was still incomplete for the intercession of Sodom. But wasn't Abraham's focus on the righteous and not the unrighteous? And the answer is yes. But what if Abraham had a fuller, more complete knowledge? See, Abraham lacked a lot of information going into these negotiations. First, Abraham was lacking the knowledge of his people he was interceding for, indicated by the persistent probing or fishing for a number. And maybe if he had known the people of Sodom, Abraham would not have even asked in the first place. But second, Abraham lacked the knowledge of the depth of the mercy of the Lord. Abraham presumes the anger of the Lord, but the Lord does not show it. The Lord gives no indication that he is agitated or frustrated with the constant requests of Abraham. And third, Abraham had nothing to give to the Lord in exchange. Everything he had was from the Lord, a gracious gift. Abraham only returns what is given to him. So Abraham had to rely solely on the mercy of the Lord. 
but within the negotiations, we can see how Abraham's intercession fails. But it is easily missed if we speed through these negotiations like as if we were reading the genealogies. See, J.C. Ryle comments on the intercession of Abraham, and he makes this observation. And if you're going to take anything away from this message, this is it. So long as Abraham asked for mercy for Sodom, the Lord went on giving. He never ceased to give until Abraham ceased to pray. Again, so long as Abraham asked for mercy from Sodom, the Lord went on giving. He never ceased to give till Abraham ceased to pray. So what if? With J.C. Ryle's observation that it was only when Abraham stopped asking that the Lord stopped giving, is it fair then to ask this? Could Abraham have spared Sodom if he asked one more time? Now, I don't want to overemphasize the next point, but if the number of, se- of seven is a number of perfection or completeness in the Bible, and Abraham stopped at six requests, would Abraham's intercession have been complete if he asked one more time? Assuming that Abraham asked in the same increment of ten. See, the observation of J.C. Ryle and the language of the Lord throughout the negotiation seemed to indicate yes. Now, do not misunderstand. It's not that Sodom is to be spared from judgment altogether because that would be unjust. But the judgment could be prolonged and maybe given the chance to repent. And this would not be uncharacteristic of the Lord. The Lord extended mercy to the nation of Israel as Moses interceded for them at the golden calf. As Moses explains the covenant he made with his people and the Lord retracts his anger. But the people of Sodom and the covenant people of the Lord are not the same thing. So I'm not going to use that argumentation. But what about the grace and mercy he shows creation daily? The world sins against the Lord daily, but he is patient, then he is slow to anger. Just imagine what the daily tally of sins that the world racks up against the Lord. Yet he prolongs judgment and does not strike them where they stand. Which is more mercy than any of us deserve. What about you and that sinful disposition that you all inherited from Adam? Can you say that you are greater than Sodom? Should you not receive the same punishment as Sodom, consumed by the wrath of the Lord? So what is the difference between the intercession of Abraham for Sodom and Jesus Christ for the fallen humanity and the covenant of redemption. And that covenant of redemption is that agreement between the Father 
and the Son before the foundations of the world. See, both were pools of sinners. Both want nothing to do with the righteousness of God. Both loving their sin and their misery. Are we so prideful to think, trying to convince ourselves that, well, I'm a sinner, but I would never, ever be that bad. Never as wicked as Sodom. So what is the difference between the sinners in Sodom and the sinners in the covenant of redemption? You see, it's the one who intercedes for them. See, what is incomplete in Abraham's intercession is complete in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Christ interceded for us in the covenant of redemption, and unlike Abraham's incomplete knowledge of the Lord, Christ knew exactly what to ask for because he fully understood the love and mercy and grace of the Father. There is no doubt, no uncertainty, if maybe a better bargain could have been struck. See, unlike Abraham's incomplete knowledge of the people that he was interceding for, Christ knew the people that he was interceding for. He knows everything about you. Your weakness, your sins, what you covet, what you need for your struggles. He knows your deepest, darkest things. The things you look away from and you lock up deep down inside and throw away the key. Jesus Christ knows. There's no thinking that he was getting a Rachel but receiving a Leah. Christ is not caught off guard, building expectation in his mind about his bride, but to be disappointed when they're not fulfilled. There's no refund because the bride did not meet his expectations. He will not go back on his promise because he knows exactly what he's getting. He knows you. He knows exactly what you need. See, unlike Abraham, Christ had something to exchange to remove the judgment and wrath of the Lord, his life. And we can't say the same about Abraham, and I don't know if it's fair to make that comparison. See, is it the character of Abraham that even he would offer his life for sinners? Scripture says that for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now Sodom does not even come close to fitting that description. So it is unlikely Abraham would have given his life. But look what Scripture reveals to you when push comes to shove. The willingness of man to give his life for the sake of others, even those close to you. Now this is Abraham pre-intercession of Sodom in Genesis 12.12 and post-intercession of Sodom in Genesis 20 verse 11. See, Abraham chose to spare himself at the expense of his bride. And this is is a reason why man's intercession will always be incomplete. 
because Abraham chose to spare himself at the expense of his bride. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Christ did not spare himself at the expense of his bride. Rather, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, achieving complete redemption for his bride. Where unlike Sodom, you no longer fear the judgment of the one who judges all the earth because Christ's intercession is complete and it's everlasting as he always lives to make intercession for his bride. Believing in Christ is all that you need. He is the perfect and complete Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can see what is incomplete in man, is complete in our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. That we do not know the full depth of your mercy and your grace, but Christ does. And Christ knew exactly what he was getting when he offered his life for his bride. And we thank you for such a wonderful sacrifice that through Christ we now live knowing the Father, redeemed and free from the judgment and wrath of an almighty God. It's through Christ's name that we pray all these things. Amen.